You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to the book of Hebrews. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. We've finished Hebrews. We're not there anymore. Okay. I didn't write a 14th chapter of Hebrews over the week. You don't have to go there, okay? Turn to Matthew 19, if you will. Matthew 19. uh, We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22 this week. Um, We're in the Easter month, Easter season, and I was... Uh, had been praying and thinking what to preach on these two Sundays we have before Easter. And uh, one of the thoughts that came to me was if I knew uh, that I was going into my final days on earth, what would I want to say to people? Now, obviously, I'm nowhere near as wise as Jesus or all-knowing as Jesus, but I just thought, what, what would I want to get across to people? And so I began to read the Gospels and uh, all four of them and to see some of the things that he taught about and some of the things that he brought up uh, in those final days as he was preparing to enter Jerusalem. And this passage, Matthew 19, 16 through 22, uh, it's also found in Mark 10. It's also found in Luke 18. It's the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler, and, I, and it just stuck out at me because it's a story of sacrifice, and, and really, as we'll see, it's a story of sacrifice that the individual is not willing to make. And I thought, we're, we're going to examine this. We're going to examine this really today and even next week, along with another piece of scripture next week as well, to talk about what it means to have sacrifice. Thank you, honey. To have sacrifice as we prepare for Easter, because that Good Friday, we're going to be obviously talking about and focusing on the sacrifice of Jesus and then looking to the resurrection. Every last Sunday of the month when we do the Lord's Supper, we're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And we rightly say that Jesus has made a sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to, but it's really only in one aspect. He made a sacrifice of his life unto death that we don't have to. But in light of that sacrifice, we are called to sacrifice. We are called to lay down our lives. He said, pick up your cross and follow him. And so we're going to be looking at this passage today and next week, in addition, next week with another passage as well. But I encourage you this week, read not only this one, but read how Mark does it in Mark 10, how Luke does it in Luke 18, because there are some differences in how these individuals tell the story. Only Luke identifies him as a ruler. Matthew and Mark identify him as the, a man or as someone who approaches Jesus. Um, only Mark states that the man knelt or fell to his knees before Jesus. Matthew and Luke just speak of him coming to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that there's discrepancies there. It could just mean that Matthew and Luke didn't specify that he fell to his knees, that he just approached Jesus. And there are some slight differences even in the descriptions of the commandments that Jesus talks about with the man. So I would encourage you, read all three segments of this this week and see how God works through all three um, accounts of that. But let's read Matthew 19, 16 through 22, and we'll come back and work through it together. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. 
Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had many great possessions. So the first thing I want us to understand here from this passage, dealing with these first couple of verses, 16, 17, and 18, is that salvation, or this idea of eternal life, is not on our terms. What we see in this passage is, with the man's initial question in verse 16, there are two phrases that really sort of jump out at me that kind of help us to understand the man's question more. It's the phrase, good deed, and the phrase, eternal life. And I'm actually going to look at them in reverse order today. So let's talk about eternal life for a moment. When we talk about eternal life, we usually use the word heaven. So what did eternal life mean for the Jew in Jesus' day? What was this man talking about when he said, what good deed must I do to inherit or to have eternal life? In the Old Testament, uh, there's a place called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And it's often referred to in the Old Testament as a place where the souls of dead persons go. And in some cases, it reads like Sheol is only the place where the wicked go. In other places, it reads as it's the place where all souls go. And uh, typically what was taught within the Jewish faith was that that area of, of the underworld, as it were, was compartmentalized. So the good souls didn't mix with the wicked souls. And so you had that teaching that worked its way through Judaism, that there was a place where the souls went after death, and it was almost, if you want to consider it, like a holding place until God did something else with them. But yet David, in Psalm 23, writes that he would be of the house of the Lord forever. Doesn't really sound like a place of Sheol, darkness, underworld to me. So there was, there was writings throughout Old Testament Judaism and Judaism faith that had sort of different teachings, different meanings for what happened to an individual after they died. But when the second temple is built, in the time period known as the second temple period in the Jewish faith, resurrection, physically bodily resurrection begins to take hold in the prophets. I'm going to read three to you today just to give you an idea. In Isaiah 26, verse 19, this is, this is how it reads. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. A physical resurrection being spoken of there in Isaiah. In Ezekiel chapter 37, it's known as the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy. And I'll admit that here Ezekiel is speaking more of a spiritual restoration than he is a physical one, but he is using physical understanding of resurrection to get it across. Ezekiel 37, beginning verse 11, He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, and I will put my spirit within you. You shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then in Daniel 12, Daniel, a a book of prophecy that really speaks more to sort of end time thinking. And in in Daniel 12, verse 1 and 2, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there will be a time of trouble such as never been in the nation till that time. But at that time your people will be delivered, everyone whose name was found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake Some to everlasting life, some to shame, some to everlasting contempt. And so within the Old Testament and and even within this this Old Testament period after the second temple is built, you now have a a beginning of a little bit of a switch. A movement from, oh, all the souls go to this place and just hang out to, oh, there's going to be a day that God busts open the graves. That he raises the dead bones, that he brings that spirit back to them and pulls them back to life. And then even within the New Testament time frame, about 150, 160 years before Jesus is born, this group arises called the Sadducees, rulers and teachers and authorities within the Jewish faith, and they completely denied the resurrection of the physical body. What they taught was that when someone died, they just ceased to exist, And the only people who would benefit from God's return to earth would be those who were in Israel and who were alive at that time. There would be no resurrection. There would be no coming back from the dead to experience an eternal heavenly kingdom. Only those who were alive would experience that. Now, why did I just take you on that quick little journey? Because I want us to understand, can we see how easy it was for this young man to be confused? Well, these people say this. Well, then in this time in history, they begin to say this. Well, now you've got these people who are saying this. Let me ask you a question. Anybody confused about what's going to happen in the end days? Rapture before trib, rapture during trib, rapture after trib, no trib. We're already in the millennial period. I mean, it's easy. It's easy to get very confused about things sometimes. And so it's easy for us to see that with this question, he is a confused young man. And so he comes and he says to Jesus, again, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? This is important because his question not only reveals his confusion, but his question reveals his mindset. What good deed must I do? What's the mindset, you ask? He wants to know what's the minimum amount I can offer here on earth and go to heaven. What's the minimal action required of me to inherit eternal life? If Jesus can just pinpoint this for him, what one good deed do you have to do, then that's all that's required in his mind. You might think, well, that's a foolish question or a foolish mindset, but don't we ask the same questions? All those years of doing youth ministry, I can't tell you how many times I heard teenagers ask within the realm of discussing sexual immorality, how far is too far? What they were really asking is, what's the minimum amount of sexual purity I can have and still get to heaven? 
Our, change, our questions change, but they become the same type of questions when we get older. Well, should I tithe 10%? Should I tithe 20 Or is it okay for me to tithe less than both of that as long as I'm cheerful about it? Because that's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. What's the minimum I can do monetarily wise and still be in in God's good graces? How much Bible should I read? Do I need to read it all? Can I just read the Gospels? Can I just read once a week? Can I just do the five minute a day devotional and that be enough? We get consumed with these same type of minimal questions. What's the least I can do? To be able to follow God. And what happens is when we're asking those questions, we're asking for salvation on our terms. Salvation is not on our terms. Secondly, salvation is not by our works. Look at Jesus' response. We're going to reread 18 again through 20. Jesus has said, keep the commandments. The rich young man or ruler says, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? His initial question to Jesus, which ones? of the commandments reveals again this mindset that he's got and he just wants to know the bare minimum now at the time you have of course the 10 also have at the time from the pharisees point of view about 600 plus commandments that a good jewish person was supposed to go by And violation of any one of them was a dangerous thing. But I think here the fact that Jesus responds to him with a part of the Ten Commandments makes it perfectly clear that in the young man's mind, he wasn't about thinking about all the 600 plus. He was thinking about the Ten. And so Jesus responds to him with, when he says, which ones, this particular set of the Ten Commandments. Now, he responds to him with what are commonly known as the horizontal commandments. Commandments 1 through 4, have no other gods before me, make no image to worship, do not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those are what we call vertical commandments, meaning they highlight my relationship to God. It's how I'm treating God. It's how I'm honoring God. But the commandments 5 through 10, do not steal, do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not covet, do not bear false witness. All of those things become what we call horizontal commandments, meaning it's how we impact or how we influence our lives with others horizontally in this world. And so Jesus responds not with 1 through 4 or 1 through 10, but simply with these horizontal 5 through 10 commandments. Why does he do that? Again, think about the description of the person in the story, the rich young man or the rich young ruler. If indeed he's a ruler, as Luke says he is, that what that meant was he was probably some type of authority position within the synagogue or the temple. And how do you get rich and wealthy and have position and power and authority? Usually by stepping on the lives of others. Oh, yes, there are some, I I know, and there are some who have great wealth and great position and power and authority, and they use it for good, and I don't discount the few that do that. But by and large, even in our own world, if you amass great wealth and great possessions and great positions of authority and power, you do so because you climb on the necks and backs of somebody else to get there. And not only to get there, but to stay there. 
And so Jesus responds to him with the commandments, the horizontal ones that would have dealt with his interactions with people specifically because he's getting to the heart of the matter with this man. And so the man responds to Jesus after he says that. Look again at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? His initial question in verse 16 is to find assurance. Now he has assurance, but he's still not sure. Now Jesus has responded and says, keep these and you'll be fine. But within the man's own mind, heart, soul, he knows that's not right. All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Understand what Jesus is doing here. He is exposing this man's heart. He's exposing this man's mind. He's exposing this man's understanding. He's exposing even the religious system that the man is living in in the day. The law and the commandments were not meant to make us holy. They were to be revealed for us that we might understand we could never be holy, thus pointing us to this man named Jesus. And Jesus is exposing that. And I want you to know why he's exposing it in this person. In Mark's version of this, in Mark chapter 10, Mark's the only one that records this. In Mark chapter 10... Verses 20 and 21 read this way. He said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Now, some believe, and I think this is quite possible, that the reason Mark is the only one that records that is because perhaps this rich young ruler was Mark himself. That Matthew doesn't record it, that Luke doesn't record it, because Mark was the man in question standing before Jesus, and he knew, he experienced Jesus looking at him and loving him and giving him this answer. Now, that's up for debate. We don't know that for sure. We'll find out the other side of heaven. But to me, it makes sense why only Mark records that and Matthew and Luke don't. But regardless, understand why Jesus is doing what he's doing to this guy in exposing his mindset and exposing his heart and exposing his thought process, even in exposing the religious system around him. He's doing it because he loves him. When we seek to expose other people, It's rarely, if ever, out of love. I'm going to expose them for who they are. I'm going to expose them for what they think. I'm going to expose them for what they said. I'm going to expose them for their stance on this or their stance on that. And it's typically always done in a human standpoint to say, I'm going to expose them so I can assume a place of superiority over them and have everybody listen to me instead of listening to them. When Jesus exposes you and me, he does so out of love. He doesn't do so out of shame and guilt and trying to beat us down. He comes to me, he comes to you, and he exposes us. He exposes the religious systems that we trust in, that are twisted and warped sometimes. And he does it because he's looking at us, he's gazing at us as he did with this man, and he loves us. So salvation is not on our own terms. Salvation is not by our works. What then is salvation, eternal life, heaven, verses 21 and 22? It is submitting our lives 
to Jesus. Jesus responds in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The young man says, what one good deed do I do? Jesus says, well, there's a few good deeds. Well, I've done all those. What thing do I still lack? Well, here's what you still lack. Sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Matthew records it, if you would be perfect. Perfect, that word dealing with completion or wholeness. We saw that word many, many times through the book of Hebrews. And Jesus is stating to this man, he won't be whole no matter how good he's been. He won't be whole and complete no matter how well he's kept those commandments, which we'll see in just a moment are not true. He won't be whole until he fully submits everything he has to Jesus. The question is always asked, why does Jesus deal with his money and why does he deal with his possessions? Well, understand this. When my dad was diagnosed with cancer back in the spring of 2004. The first place it showed up when his, it was in his right lung. And they didn't go in as doctors and go, well, we're just going to pull out the whole lung. They went in surgically, precisely, to remove that piece of cancer from his lung to give him a chance. Jesus surgically, precisely, cuts things away from our lives to give us a chance. He doesn't just come in and just rip chunks of our lives out. He comes in and deals with us in a very precise manner to say, this is your one thing. Just because it's the man's thing, that it's wealth and possessions and ultimately power, because again, in this story, all those things go together, doesn't mean that's necessarily your thing or my thing. But there is something there is something that all of us should, on a daily basis, say, God, is there anything in my life today that I lack? And for this man, it's wealth and position and power. And I showed you that I was going to tell you that he thought he had kept all those things really well. Remember going back to the end of verse 19? Jesus includes, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man says, all these I have kept. Jesus exposes that to be a lie because when he says, sell everything and give to the poor, the man walks away sad. If all those things he had kept, that would have been just another opportunity for the man to say, oh, this is how I love my neighbor. Sell everything, give it all to, okay, perfect, fine, no problem. But the fact that he hesitated, the fact that he walked away, that he couldn't let go, Proves he wasn't as good as he thought he was. And this is the point of this story. Not wealth, not material possessions. God does not call every person to take a vow of poverty and sell everything and give everything to the poor. The point of the story is the man was searching for and the man believed he could give the minimum amount required. And when Jesus pointed out the one thing, he couldn't do it. When Jesus pointed out the one thing in his life, he couldn't do it. And when he couldn't do it, what it showed him and what it shows us is that he wasn't as good as he thought that he was. 
to do that, to, to, to sell everything, to give to the poor and to follow Jesus would have meant absolute trust in Jesus. And the fact that he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Luke describes him as being extremely rich. The fact that he went away sorrowful and did not do that meant that he had an idol in his life. So oftentimes when we think of idols, and certainly throughout history and even still today, it is this way, that it's a carved image, it's a carved piece of wood or stone or something fashioned out of metal, and we might see images from other places in the world of people bowing down before it or worshiping it, or you might see a depiction of that from the Old Testament times, and certainly idols have that meaning to them. But ultimately, we're all potentially guilty of idolatry. We're all potentially guilty of setting up something in our lives that gets in the way of us saying to Jesus, yes, I'll leave it all to follow you. Paul talks about that in his writing to the Colossians. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says a similar thing in Ephesians 5, but he's talking to them about their new life, and he says things like put off sexual immorality and impurity and strive for holiness. And he says leave behind covetousness, which is greed and a want for material possessions and wealth. And he says leave that behind or put that away, which is idolatry. An idol is anything that prevents you and I from following Jesus fully. For this man, it was money and wealth and possessions and power. For the rest of us, it might be those same things or it might be something completely different. It might be career. It might be your perceived notion of what family should look like. It might be your perceived notion of what your personal appearance should look like. It might mean hobbies and interests. We could just go on and on and on with examples, but the reality of it is we all are potentially guilty of Jesus looking at us and saying, one thing you lack, do this and follow me, and us turning away sad because we're not willing to give it up. Bare minimum or give it all away and follow him. How can you be saved? How do you know you're saved? You begin to answer the question right that Jesus poses poses to you. People get mad and say, well, you shouldn't have people question their salvation. Jesus just did. Jesus just took a man who was convinced that he knew what it took to have eternal life and even proudly stood before Jesus and said, all those things I've kept. I'm good. Oh, what? Paul does it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 as he's closing that letter. He writes in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. What does it mean to examine and test ourselves? Is is my life, is your life on a trajectory towards Christ-likeness? It doesn't mean there's not going to be a valley here or there. It doesn't mean there's not going to be a season where sin grips hold of us or where we fall into sin or where we just have struggles. But the trajectory ought to be going up. If it's flatlined or going down, that's a problem. John does it in his letter in 1 John. He says in 1 John 1.8, if you say you have no sin, you lie to yourself. 
In 2.4, he says, if we say we love him but don't keep his commandments, we lie to ourselves. In John 3, 8 through 10, he said those who uh, go on having a practice of sinning, meaning a habitual desire to sin, they do not know God. 4, 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God. It is better to be examined and tested. It is better for Jesus to say to us, one thing you lack, and for us to be aware of, oh, I was wrong, than to think you are right and to meet Jesus one day, having never fully yielded to him. Adrian Rogers, the great pastor out of Memphis for many, many years, wrote a sermon called Three Strikes and You're Out. And he says this as part of his sermon. Jesus didn't come to make you a nicer person. He came to radically, dramatically, and eternally transform you. He goes on to say the worst sin, the sin of all sins, the worst form of badness is human goodness. When human goodness becomes a substitute for new birth. When you and I sit around and say, well, we're not that bad. Well, we're basically pretty good. When we begin to take on the side of the Pharisee, not the tax collector, in the parable of the Pharisee and tax collector, and say, well, at least we're not like them. Human goodness is no substitute for new birth in Jesus. Now to close, I often think about scriptures and stories and things that we read. And in my mind, I oftentimes just kind of think, well, if, if this was today, what, how, would, how would these scenarios be played out? And it, it's, it's probably going to make some of you mad, but it's all right. When Jesus gets to meddling, he gets to mending. This scene plays out in my mind like this. Jesus here on earth today, and somebody, a man, woman, boy, or girl, comes up to him and says, Jesus, what must I do to go to heaven? Because remember, when we say eternal life, we say heaven. What must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus responds, well, you need to say the sinner's prayer and ask me into your heart. I did that. I was six, I was 16, I was 26, I was 66. Yeah, did, repeated it word for word, didn't miss a single word of it. Prayed that Jesus come into my heart. I did that. Great. Now lay down your one thing and follow me. Lay down your one thing. Money, wealth, possessions, position, authority. A love of something greater than Jesus. A love to see something or someone or some institution become greater than Jesus an institution or something or someone that you put more trust and faith in than Jesus. Lay down that one thing and follow me. And it pains me as a pastor, but more so as one saved by grace to say, my fear is many who had prayed the prayer would walk away sad. Praying the prayer may help you understand what Jesus has done, but it does not secure for you what Jesus has done.
And it is time the church asks Jesus, for one thing I still lack. For one thing I still lack. And he will either respond, you lack nothing. You've been faithful. You've been walking in and with me for the whole time. And, 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 and you're, you're, you're secure because you're not secure by your works, but you're secure because you trust in me. Or his response will be, yeah, there's one thing you just won't give up. There's one thing you just won't give, let go hold of. There's just one thing that you really love more than you love me. Will we go away sad? Or will we lay it down and follow him? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.